0: Neither the United States of America, nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception. But I welcome this kind of examination, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook.
1: I did not trade arms for hostages.
2: Welcome to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I am here to tell the stories that we found out the hard way, through public records and FOIA requests. For today's story, I talked to two people that work at two organizations dedicated to fighting government overreach. I talked to Oliver Dunford at Pacific Legal Foundation and Peggy Little at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Both of them have encountered problems with the same organization, the Securities and Exchange Commission, keeping secrets and trying to prevent the public from knowing how it's using the power we have given it so that it could protect us from market manipulation by market players who wield a lot of influence in their specific areas. We're going to focus on two main issues, one with each speaker. For Oliver, one of the problems that he finds most concerning is the fact that the SEC can require you to disclose information that would normally take a warrant without a judge's signature, which means that you don't get your Fourth Amendment protections. This concern led Oliver to submit several public records requests or FOIA requests at the federal level for records of the investigations that they were conducting and how those investigations were handled to see if the people who were being accused were getting the constitutional protection they deserved.
1: Some accommodations we be made between the government's right to prohibit fraudulent behavior, the private party's right to protect itself. Uh, in the public's right to know all of this, um,
2: and then with Peggy, we're going to talk about after investigation, what happens when you're actually accused of violating a specific law, and what the SEC can require of you in exchange for not trying to send you
0: to jail. And so we have this uh, terrible situation where, win or lose, the SEC can never get a gag, but if you sell, it, it extracts. Something from you that was never at stake in the litigation.
2: Both of them come at this from angles that aren't exactly public records focused, but both of them also rely on these kinds of disclosures to try to bring about just outcomes. In editing this episode, I realized that it needs a lot of background on how administrative law works. So here's the Hannah Markley quick and dirty version of administrative power overview. First, Congress passes a law. This is going to be the empowering statute that creates the agency that you're talking about. An administrative agency can come from any number of bills. For example, the SEC comes from the Securities and Exchange Act and also enforces the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and many other pieces of legislation. So Congress passes a law, creates an agency to administer that law, and then kind of has a hands off approach. The agency is empowered to do two things it's empowered to interpret a law and it's empowered to enforce a law. But in doing both of those things, it has to engage in its own kind of lawmaking process. It can go through what's called notice and comment rulemaking, which you may have heard of, where it publishes its proposed rule to the public and the public is allowed to comment on it and then it must evaluate those comments before enacting the rule. Or if a rule isn't particularly impactful or is a very obvious housekeeping measure, it can be done without notice and comment and simply published in the Federal Register. These rules are the subject of a lot of debate in certain circles because there's a question about whether The agency is making new law or interpreting the law that Congress gave it. Because one of those, interpreting the law, is legal, but making new law is not. In deciding how to apply the law, agencies have a lot of leeway, and therefore they get a lot of flack for being free of oversight. If you find this kind of debate interesting, you should check out the US Virginia versus EPA case that came out of the Supreme Court last week. It really gets into the details of this issue. Furthermore, many agencies, including the SEC, use quasi-courts or administrative law courts in enforcing their rules. These courts are not under the judicial structure of a traditional court. And they don't have the same kind of appeal process or the same kind of judicial appointment process that's designed to ensure that those making decisions are free from bias. Making sure that government sticks to this kind of power structure is kind of the goal for people like Oliver Dunford at the Pacific Legal Foundation Separation of Powers Group.
1: Uh, practice in Separation Powers Group while well, we're trying to limit the government's ability to um, do things unilaterally through the executive branch. think All three branches should be involved in uh, depriving people's rights. Congress writes the law, the executive enforces it, and the judiciary decides disputes that arise.
2: So that's the context we're in when we look at the SEC actions that we're going to talk about today. First, we're going to talk about the refusal to disclose records for how they conduct their civil investigation when Oliver asked. And then we're going to talk about their rule that in order to settle an accusation against you, you have to promise never to talk about your accusation. These two things create black boxes around the SEC's enforcement and create a environment where government power is used without oversight.
1: Here, the SEC... uh like many agencies, brings a number of cases in court, but they, but they also bring a number of cases before it's in-house administrative law judges. And Congress uh, did give them the authority to do that. And for criminal, of course, they, the DOJ takes it and that is in court. They at least bring criminal cases to court, but civil actions can be, uh, enormously consequential businesses and individuals are subject to massive fines, millions and millions of dollars of fines. This can be done again for an administrative law judge who is employed by the SEC. Uh, the SEC, like other agencies, has a, an official separation of functions. And so the ALJs and the staff that work for the ALJs supposedly are separated from the enforcement division of the SEC. But there have been stories and studies showing that the ALJs are uh, under pressure. Implicit, if not explicit to rule in favor of the agency. And they also have, of course, they want to keep their jobs. And now again, officially the jobs are hired for the, they are, uh, applicants are reviewed by a separate agency, uh, but they are employed by the sec. And so mm-hmm. there is an inherent conflict of interest there, uh, incentives do matter. And, uh. And so our interest in the SEC is, is mainly uh, it, on the administrative side. Uh, we certainly don't want the SEC to abuse its power well when it goes to court, but but at least when it goes to court, there's a there's a separate branch, there's an independent judge that that oversees the case. Uh, what what is in house though the SEC uh, again, that's both the prosecutor and the judge. And discovery and procedural rules are stricter than they would be in federal court. And the ALJ gets to make all those decisions.
2: One of those pre-enforcement, pre-ruling decisions that the ALJs or someone else in the agency gets to make is issuing civil investigative demands.
1: One other thing that agencies often do is they send out what are called uh, civil investigative demands, CIDs, which is essentially a subpoena issued by an administrative agency, uh, and they do not require a sign-up by a judge.
2: Subpoenas are legal tools used to get information or testimony. In court or in criminal trials, you might have seen it to see a witness subpoena to come testify in a case, those sort of things. But when they're required to produce information, typically it requires a judge to order you to disclose information. This gets back to your Fourth Amendment rights, your right to be free from unreasonable searches. And being forced by an agency without the third-party oversight of a judge to disclose information does seem to infringe on some of your privacy that should be protected by the Fourth Amendment.
1: It's a subpoena issued to a a small business or big businesses. We have tried, PLF has tried to get uh, copies of those CIDs, uh, these subpoenas, and we have been denied on the ground that they uh, would disclose uh, the SEC's uh, investigations, that they would uh, inhibit the investigations.
2: What Oliver is saying is that they made FOIA requests for the copies of issued civil investigative demands and were told that those records, those public records, were exempt from disclosure because they would have shown how the agency does its enforcement. This is one of the exceptions to FOIA, but it is used when something being disclosed might prevent the investigation from finding real facts. In this case, the civil investigative demands have already been issued to the party that was accused. So the people that could change things or hide things based on those demands already have the documents in hand which makes it seem like a silly way to reject a FOIA request.
1: Some of this is understandable. The companies who are under investigation don't necessarily want this information public. Some accommodation is appropriate. Problem though, is that the SEC has so much power, not only will a court generally enforce these subpoenas, uh, but the SEC can hang threats over the recipient's heads and say, well, if you don't don't, uh, comply, will have no choice but to bring up an action against you. And again, the SEC can bring the action, either in court or uh, in-house. And if they take it in-house, they win almost all the time. And so there is a a great disparity in power. And if you don't do the SEC's bidding, then uh, they can bring an action against you. And what you're doing in many cases is you are turning over information to the SEC that they can later use to bolster their actions or SEC may find something in which they can, with which they can use to bring additional claims against you.
2: After looking through the enforcement guide and the policies that are published online on the SEC's website and doing a lot of digging, Oliver and PLF still couldn't figure out how the SEC decided who to prosecute. As we'll hear later from Peggy, it's not always clear when the SEC makes those kinds of decisions and what motivates them to select prosecuting party A instead of party B. And this is important when you're talking about oversight to know that they're making these decisions based on the law and the facts, not based on, for example, party prejudice.
1: We're hoping that we would find uh, kind of what the SEC uh, thinks, how, how it goes about deciding when to send out an administrative subpoena, what, what the basis is. Is it simply a hunch? Uh, is it a, you know, one, one call came in and, and there was a complaint about a company. Uh, do they have to meet any kind of probable cause standard in order to send these out? We're just trying to see what the practice is and, and to see if the practice, uh, the actual practice deviated from what manuals said or what the law says. And just to see if, again, if we could keep the SEC honest, make them stick to what what they're supposed to be doing.
2: As part of PLF's mission to hold government accountable and particularly enforcement branches accountable, they've sent out these kind of FOIA requests pretty often.
1: We've sent it to a few agencies in addition to the SEC. We, in all cases, um, we've got the same answer, which is somewhat um, Comforting is the right word, but, but at least the agencies are acting consistently in, in that respect, that they're, uh, that if they're investigating a company that, that remains, at least for now, uh, closed. Uh, so we have not, in and, and the, in as a general matter, we're not going to find out when a, an administrative subpoena is issued unless uh, a company challenges it in courts. But outside of actions being filed or a uh, company, just saying out loud, here's what's going on, generally, those subpoenas will be uh, kept from the public. I'm um, not that the government should have to open its, uh, you know, disclose everything it's doing all the time, but more transparency is better than that, obviously.
2: What Oliver is getting at here is that there's more than just the agency's actions at stake here. These investigative demands affect companies and private parties who might not want that information disclosed. Furthermore, they're kind of related to the attorney-client issues. The agency, the SEC in this case, is talking to its attorneys about how to pursue an investigation. And those kinds of conversations are often private. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to get information that's already been disclosed to the party who's being accused. There are ways that the agency could try to mitigate the risk to its investigation or to the agency's privacy, but still disclose the important oversight documents that Oliver is looking for.:
1: I think they, they could have redacted some names or uh, redacted some of the information that they were seeking, which would disclose who the recipient is. Also more of the underlying. Um, basis of, of why they're sending out these subpoenas again, is there any kind of probable cause student did the sec think that there was some fraudulent behavior going on? Was it just a hunch? Those are the kinds of things that, uh, that, that kind of information outside of publicly available manuals and things like that. Okay. And so the goal here uh, is to make sure that the sec, which does have a role to play, ensuring regulated parties don't break the law, uh, but the agencies themselves can't break the law while they're doing it. Uh, and if they, look, everyone should be subject to the same rules, but when it, it's just a, uh, the government's engaged in a fishing expedition and you're asking to show of all kinds of information, which can later be used to incriminate you. Yeah, there's a, there's a problem there and some accommodation needs to be made between the government's right to prohibit fraudulent behavior, the private party's right to protect itself, uh, and the public's right to know all of this. Um,
2: so the SEC wouldn't let Oliver figure out how they decide who is worth investigating, whose stuff to snoop through. And that's just the beginning of the problems at the SEC. When we come back, we'll hear from Peggy Little about what happens after someone gets charged. Hey, y'all. I hope you're enjoying the show. I got involved with Open Records because of my time on the board with the Washington Coalition for Open Government. WASHCOG is an incredible organization. They only have one employee and a board of really active volunteers. If you could help support the mission of Washington Coalition for Open Government, I would really appreciate it. See a link in the podcast notes. Peggy Little and the other attorneys at the new Civil Liberties Alliance have done a lot of work on the other issue I mentioned, the gag rule that the SEC uses to keep people who have been accused of violating securities laws from discussing the accusation. They represent a man named Barry Romerle, who has been unable to talk about the prosecution against him from the early 2000s.
0: Barry was formerly the chief by- financial officer of the Xerox corporation. And he'd held other very high positions in international companies as well. The SEC charged Xerox and I think it was five of its high executives with accounting manipulation. And to be honest with you, I'm not a CPA. And at one point I probably could have described exactly what was at stake. But essentially, it's smoothing out your profitability data. So it, there's not a lot of jumps to it. This is something that was done a lot in the in that time period. Jack Welch at GE was famous for doing it. Uh, and GE never got charged. Um, this was something at KPMG, which was the Arx's accounting firm, was also charged in this. If you read the literature that was coming out, Around this time, it was described as a sea change in SEC enforcement. So what it meant was that the uh, SEC was reaching into new areas under new theories um, of financial misconduct that certainly had not been seen as something that regulator would punish or even regard as a securities law violation.
2: This is an example of an administrative agency trying to interpret its empowering statute, here the Securities and Exchange Act, and coming up with changing ideas of what the law means over time. This is something that can create a lot of upheaval in the regulated community and also can catch
0: people off guard. And they filed the complaint against Barry Romerle, Paul Lair, and the various other executive. Um, officers in the Southern District of New York in 2003. And about eight days later, the settlements and paperwork was filed. So this was not a case that was litigated. It was investigated. There was obviously some negotiation about what the nature of the charges would be. And Xerox, as too many companies do, in my opinion, agreed to pay multi-million dollars uh, to get the SEC off its back and to move on. None of the companies like to pander an SEC investigation.
2: So the SEC created this new category of misconduct without giving any warning to the regulated community like Xerox or other large corporations that it was something that could get them into trouble. And right off the bat, they went after Mr. Romerle and the other leadership people at Xerox.
0: There was this sea change in 2003 when Mary Jo White became head of SEC, she talked about having a regime of um, really aggressive uh, enforcement. And you see that um, certainly post 2008, there was a lot of that going on as well. Uh, It does make a difference um, what uh, SEC chairman or commissioners are in charge at the time. And they disagree amongst themselves as to what constitutes a securities law violation as well. This
2: gets back to Oliver's concern about making sure that the government is following its own rules to produce consistent rather than arbitrary outcomes.
1: The one one concern about government is when it doesn't follow the rules, when it follows the whim of um, particular individuals who are running things. Justice Scalia mentioned this in his famous Morrison versus Olson dissent, quoting from the Massachusetts constitution that we want to be a nation of laws and that of men. Uh, And if we're not a nation of laws, then we are subject to whim and to arbitrary rule.
2: So if there is disagreement on whether or not an action is a violation, and it hasn't been proven to be a violation in any court, but maybe is the whim of a new SEC director, what would make a company decide to take a settlement instead of to fight it?
0: Well, certainly being under investigation by the SEC involves uh, bad publicity. It affects the stock price. It distracts the executives from their other duties. And the exposure is very high. It's very easy to um, bring a case and convince a jury that, you know, these large corporations are up to no good. And the costs of defense are enormous in some of our briefing in Mr. Rummerl's gag case and other gag cases. We have uh, shown that in their, a 2015 study, the average cost of spending an SEC enforcement action runs into the millions of dollars, and that does not even count the uh, pre the investigative phase, the pre-enforcement phase. So it's a very uh, heavy burden. Most companies prefer to exceed and. Pay the fine and move on. And it's, I spent the first 20 or so years of my career representing, amongst other things, uh, Fortune 50 companies. And I can tell you the rush to settlement is very much built into the corporate culture.
2: Another factor that often pushes parties to settle when they're accused by an agency like this is the fact that the agency often controls the court that you're heard in. You remember how Oliver mentioned earlier that sometimes the prosecuting agency can choose to go through an administrative court? What that really means is that the judge in the case is also employed by the agency, which means that it's hard to imagine there isn't at least some bias in the court.
1: We think that uh, that process itself is problematic when you have an agency acting as both prosecutor and judge uh, and then when you get to the appeal, when you find the allowed to appeal an adverse decision by an agency to a court, the court has to defer to both the law uh, as found by the agency and file the facts as found by the agency. And so um, in all these cases, we think that the government should, uh, certainly has a role to play in prosecuting fraudulent behavior, uh, but they have to do it through the proper channels.
2: So there's pressure to settle both from the corporate culture and from the fear related to actually litigating the case and how bad that could be. Plus, there's the publicity issue. That's where the second limit on transparency comes in, the gag rule that Peggy and NCLA
0: are fighting. The gag rule is a rule that says you consent, and the consent is a huge issue here, that the you will never question any allegation that the SEC brought against you, or even create the impression that you were less than guilty of everything they said you were guilty of. And you can't even allow someone else to say that on your behalf. But it, it, it essentially silences the public discourse on your prosecution. That's unconstitutional.
2: Aside from the unconstitutionality, what are the policy implications of keeping defendants from discussing the truthfulness of allegations against them?
0: Well, they're quite enormous. Um, I guess one starting point would be two commissioners, one a Democratic appointee, Roberta Carmel, and another Republican, Hester Purse, who is still an SEC commissioner. Both of them have published comments that are very concerned about regulation through settlement, that what the SEC does when it when they take these steps to expand the theory and nature of their jurisdiction over regulated parties, that when they silence the person, very important information is, is taken out of the public uh, discourse. And both of those commissioners said they were, were very concerned about the SEC um, essentially making up the law that it uses to enforce against regulated parties and further that then they use the prior settlement as a precedent and said, well, you know, Xerox was charged with this and therefore you have the same exposure and they paid, you know, multimillion dollars in in fines.
2: Testing out novel theories is something that public interest law firms like PLF and NCLA do a lot, but it's not something you think of the government doing—figuring out new ways to charge people with crimes or civil violations.
1: They they do prosecute and regulate which people, but but that's not all. Uh, anyone who's engaged in interstate uh, trading in securities is for works in that industry, so accounting firms and things like that, can not be subject to the SEC's jurisdiction. And, and the government likes test cases, like public interest firms. We, we look for sympathetic clients, and for test cases, to try out theories. And, and so does the government. And, and the government may want to test a new case against uh, some low-hanging fruit. It's the party that doesn't have the resources to fight.
2: So for some reason, Peggy's client, Barry Romeral, became a test case for this new interpretation of account manipulation. And he really wants to know why. So much so that when he found out that NCLA was speaking out against the gag rule,
0: he sought them out. That's this is a fun story. NCLA is dedicated to opposing abuses of administrative power, and um, we learned of the gag rule. And so the first thing we did was we filed a petition to amend with the FCC itself in which we briefed why it's a prior restraint, a content, and a viewpoint-based discrimination. It violates your rights of petition, Uh, just (laughs) basically a hornbook of First Amendment law. And we briefed that to the FCC in October of 2018. It it was one of the first things I did after uh, coming to work here. And as part of that mission of, of getting these pieces of administrative power out to the public and understood, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, which they published to my delight. <laughs> I've been trying to get one of those published for quite some time. And they took this one. And uh, the day it came out, Barry Romerle called me up and said, I want you to represent me.
2: But what exactly was Barry asking NCLA to do here? He had already agreed, technically, to the settlement. But what exactly is a settlement, and
0: what kind of ongoing power does it have? Well, the settlement, of course, is civil. The interesting thing is U.S. attorneys do not, and they don't even try to get gags as part of a plea bargain. In a criminal context. And we cite cases in all papers about this. Any kind of First Amendment violation that requires someone in a plea bargain to surrender a constitutional right is very heavily disfavored and usually held unconstitutional. So the, the, what I'd like to call a real prosecutor, which would be a U.S. attorney, they don't even ask for them. I'm told anecdotally they think it's kind of hilarious. That the SEC thinks it, could, it can get something that an actual prosecutor.
2: So when you said that you first filed a petition to get rid of the gag rule, independent of Mr. Romero, is the gag rule ensconced somewhere aside from the actual settlement
0: agreements? Another great story. (laughs) Uh, The gag rule is uh, called a rule, but it's not. And the reason it is not is they uh, the SEC's just published it in the Federal Register, saying it was effective immediately, and because it was a mere housekeeping rule, it, they did not need to publish it for notice and comment.
2: This goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, about how some rules that are not very important don't have to go through notice and comment rulemaking. But rules that actually affect regulated parties are supposed to go through a process where the public has a right to engage.
0: So in 1972, when they slipped this thing into the federal register, there was never any notice in common on it. I have brought this up in every pleading and in also the petition to amend with the FCC, because this is no different from, say, Congress passing a bill and failing to pass it through both houses or presented to the president for signature.
2: Oliver says that he sees this pretty commonly in many agencies.
1: The agencies are either overstepping their statutory mandate, going beyond what the congressional authorization allows, or they're issuing rules through a shortened process that doesn't give the public sufficient opportunities to comment on or object to a proposed rule.
2: So this quasi-rule about the gag orders and settlements has affected Mr. Romerle. And he's trying to figure out what he can do about it. But I wanted to know what he wanted to do or say that the gag rule was preventing him from doing. So you met Mr. Romerle after the Wall Street Journal article, and he asked you to represent him.
0: What was he wanting to do that he wasn't allowed to do? Well, I can't really... um say exactly what he would say because of the gag, and we've been very careful about that. There's a highly regarded professor um, at Columbia named John John Coffey, I think they call him Jack, and he's written about the gag and why it, uh, I think his line is, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. <laughs> so the gag is also under academic criticism. Did you make any public
2: FOIA requests to the SEC about how they handled investigations or pre-enforcement action related to either the the underlying issue of the account manipulation or the gag
0: rule use? But more the former. We made requests just for Mr. Romwell's records, still not answered. Um, and they... Of course, claimed that they were archived because it was 2003, which was a long time ago. And then during COVID, they said that nobody could go over to the archives. um, And we're still in a stalemate on that. It's not critical to our issues because they're not really very fact based. Um, But Barry would like to know what was (laughs) behind his uh, prosecution. And we made those requests in 2000. 19, and they are still not answered.
2: This is really par for the course for the SEC. They have a D minus for their FOIA responses with the government efficacy project and are generally regarded as one of the worst responders when it comes to FOIA requests.
0: In in a criminal proceeding, you can write a book thereafter and say the government's case against me didn't hold water. And I can, I can prove this um, by talking about, uh, say, Mark Cuban, Nelson Obis, um, who have been two of our supporters in the gang petitions. They both were wealthy people who could f- afford to fight the SEC through trial and win. So anybody who wins against the SEC can speak. Here's what's crazy. If you lose and you go to prison, you can also write a book, and I uh, commend to your listeners, two recent books, one by Rajat Gupta and the other by Raj Rajanatram, who were both associated with Goldman Sachs. There was an insider trading allegation. Both of them were convicted by juries and did time in prison. They have both published books. They are being interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorgan on uh, Squawk Box, the NBC, and they're saying that the SEC's case didn't hold water. They're denying the allegations, which they are free to do under a case called Simon & Schuster versus the New York State Crime Victims Board. And that case, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case, says just because you've been convicted of a crime does not mean you can't speak about it. And so we have this uh, terrible situation whether win or lose. The SEC can never get a gag. But if you sell it, extracts something from you that was never at stake in the litigation. And that's the core misunderstanding that the FCC has about its powers.
2: Peggy feels very strongly about the procedural issues that happen when you settle out of your case instead of fighting it. There's A lot of constitutional law about the rights you have if a cop pulls you over and charges you with a crime or any number of other things that you've seen on TV about going to court, your right to call witnesses, but you
0: lose all that in a settlement. You waive a right to a hearing. You waive your right to appear before a judge on the settlement. You waive your first amendment constitutional rights. And you also make all these statements in your Quote unquote consent that says, and I've not been threatened or in, in any way forced to sign this consent, and I wasn't threatened with criminal proceedings. That is routinely untrue. Uh, in fact, uh, people Mr. Romero's situation are threatened with criminal prosecution all the time. And it, just because they sign a consent form, which is drafted by the FCC that says they weren't, doesn't mean that they.
2: So, NCLA and Mr. Romerle are arguing that the consent to the settlement agreement wasn't really consent and that it wasn't really legal for the SEC to demand this prior restraint on his speech, on Mr. Romerle's speech. And so, the NCLA attorneys challenged the gag order portion of the settlement agreement. In Court in the Southern District of New York, the
0: judge who issued the course seemed um offended, I would say it just in the in the nature of the opinion, it was very dismissive. so he agreed to it? The court opinion went on and on about how Xerox was you know this important case, the largest civil settlement uh, of its time, and the judge seemed to think that this was very uh, impressive and it's not something that you should be disturbing sixteen years later. And one of the grounds for her opinion was 16 years is just too long. And we wanted to say, well, what would be the right time? Is it 30 days after it's entered? 60 days? Six years? 16 years? So what did you do when you got that bad decision? Well, we appealed uh, to the Second Circuit, where I hoped uh, we would get a good reception because of the Crosby case. crosby Golden is very powerful. It says, no court may enter a prior restraint, even upon consent. But remember, uh, the courts of appeals are filled with former prosecutors and also filled with people who, as district judges, probably entered such orders themselves. So I think the traditional discomfort bled through in the Second Circuit opinion.
2: What rationale did they give for why they think that this is a legitimate practice?
0: Uh, One, they uh, say, well, he agreed to it. He had notice and an opportunity to be heard, which is not true. The consent itself says you don't get that. And two, that, you know, he's bound by his own agreement. So what you have is just what's called an intra-circuit conflict um, that's been pointed out to the Supreme Court. We also feel that the um, decision Romero is also in conflict with the law of several circuits, um, including the 11th, the 6th, the 4th, and the 9th. So we have a lot of uh, circuit conflict, which is the sort of thing that does get you certiorari at the United States Supreme Court.
2: So you asked the Supreme Court to hear the case.
0: We did. We are um, cautiously hopeful.
2: Who else might be interested in the outcome of this case? What kind of practical impact would it have?
0: It has enormous practical impact. I think the thing most visible right now is Elon Musk, who was fighting that in the uh, Southern district of new york what he he did when the s e c told him he was violating the gag uh, provision that he had agreed to a few years earlier. He just moved in the Southern District of New York before Judge Nathan to say, "I want my settlement set aside, and uh, she in He also cited the Crosby case, the earlier case. It's still good law in his uh, reply proceedings. And he has um, appeared as an amicus in support of us, as has Mark Cuban, Philip Goldstone, and um, Nelson Owis. These are all people who fought the SEC and won. Had Barry Romerle been convicted of the most heinous crimes, say treason or assassination of, of a the highest public official, he could still talk. <laughs> and I mentioned, uh, the two, uh, gentlemen who had been convicted by the SEC and, and by juries, Mr. Gupta and Mr. Rajanatram and one of the most poignant moments in Mr. Rajanatram's appearance on CNBC's Squawk Box is right at the end. He says, but I am still so proud and grateful to be a first-generation American. Uh, He said, I disagree with the jury's uh, verdict, but I respect it. And the reason I am so proud and happy to be an American is that I can freely speak and state my case.
2: So there you have it on this 4th of July, being able to talk openly about what the government does right and what it does wrong is What makes being an American so special to some people? And that's what I hope we can accomplish together. So keep listening to Revealed, and I look forward to telling you more stories we found out the hard way. See you next time.